there are times when seeking the Lord's face for direction, for something to minister. And uh, I've had some of these younger people say to me, I don't know how you preach twice a week, and there are times I don't know either. But I do know that that whatever responsibility the Lord gives you, He equips you to do that responsibility. And, and so we look to the Lord. Um, I'd like to tell you that every time I get a message, it comes in exactly the same way. But it doesn't. There are times I know what I'm going to preach days, possibly weeks in advance of a particular service. Uh, there are other times when uh, I come to the house of the Lord without any direction, but knowing that the Lord's going to take care of things, um, and He has never failed me yet. Um, when I was younger, that used to terrify me, but after a while, you just recognize that God's in control, and He's going to have His way. And in the midst of all of that, you're trying to find... You see, the, this book is full of sermons, and uh, when I can't find any in the book, I've got a computer that's full of them as well. <laughs> Lots of different things I've collected over the years and, and possibly more than 500 sermons of my own. But, but the, the last couple of days uh, has been a little bit unusual and the Lord's kept bringing me back to a portion of Scripture and, but not really letting me know what's going on. And uh, so this morning, if I am a little broken and disjointed, it's because I'm just trying to follow after leading in the Spirit. Uh, I, I like to be organized, I like to be structured, I like to be reasonably fluent, but uh, this morning I'm just trying to follow after the leading of the Spirit of the Lord. Bless the Lord. So we're going to Genesis 37. And we will start at verse 19. <coughs> the Scripture says, this is uh, the sons of Jacob speaking, Joseph's brothers. It says, And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, Reuben being the oldest son, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. Reuben had a plan to see that Joseph got home. Verse 23 says, And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph of, out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels, bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it that we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content. And I want to also go to Second Corinthians, 
chapter 12. One of the other challenges of seeking direction from the Lord to minister, and I'm just being a little transparent this morning, is that the challenge of trying to discern what is the direction of God and not necessarily responding to situations or circumstances that you think need to be addressed. Uh, I might be aware that Brother Jonathan has a problem and it would be easy for me to stand in the pulpit and fix his problem for him publicly. Uh, but that's not how the Lord would have us to operate, I don't believe. I believe we need to be led by the Spirit. So with that, uh, 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 I don't know what the word is, disclaimer. Um, if, if anything I minister this morning resonates to anything that any of you have spoken to me about recently, please trust me that it's not a response, but rather I'm doing my best to follow the leading of the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul speaks about uh, he's, he's a combination of thoughts. He starts out by talking about the incredible experiences that he's had in the Spirit, of how the things that the Lord has allowed him to see, to experience, and that the Lord has revealed to him are amazing and difficult for him to describe or to quantify. But on the flip side of that, he says, so that God would keep my feet on the ground so that the Lord would help me to stay humble and not become exalted in myself, he gave me a thorn in the flesh. The Bible describes it as a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And, and uh, you've heard me speak about this before. There are a lot of different opinions about what it is that, that Paul had to endure. I don't have the answer for that. But the principle, the, the message that's important is not what it was. Because if that was important, Paul would have told us. If it was important that we knew what this thorn was, the Lord would have made sure that it was written for us. The important part is that the Lord had to show Paul something because Paul said, I asked God three times to take it away. Now, it was obviously not something small. He wasn't dealing with having badly cooked meals or, or slow Wi-Fi or any of the things that irritate us so quickly. Because he was a man that knew what it was to suffer. He was a man that knew what it was to go through hardship. And so whatever this thorn in his flesh was, it was something that was getting him down. It was something that was affecting him and, and distracting him and discouraging him to the point that he went to the Lord about it three times. And the Lord said this in, in verse 9. And this verse is often quoted, but there are some very powerful principles in verse 9. It says, Paul said that the Lord said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Bless the Lord. And with the help of the Lord this morning, I guess the thrust of what I feel like God wants me to speak about is this, his glory, my infirmities. His glory and my infirmities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. God, we feel your presence. And Lord, you want to do something in our midst, Lord God. And I just pray, Lord, that not according to the will of man or the thinking of natural human minds, but by your spirit, Lord, that we would be guided, Lord Jesus, 
that you would move on us, Lord God, that you would do what only you can do in us, Lord Jesus, I pray. We ask you this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. The latter 12, 13, maybe 15 chapters of the book of Genesis tell us the wonderful story of Joseph. It's been preached about again and again. It's a, it's a story that I never seem to tire of reading. The story of, of Joseph and his family and, and his re, reunion with, with Jacob, his father. And Joseph is obviously the lead character in this narrative. He's the one that the story revolves around. It revolves around the fact that he was his father's favorite son and the, the angst that, that caused in his family. There was a, a lot of division in that family. Jacob had two wives. One was definitely treated better than the other and there was competition to see who could have the most sons there was competition for Jacob's affections it was it was the last kind of place you'd want to live there was very little peace in Jacob's house but Joseph came late in life to Rachel who at that up until that point had been barren but was the favorite wife of Jacob and because of the the favoritism and the imbalance in the home Jacob was, was not looked upon fondly by his older brothers. Uh, it was fairly clear that Jacob favored Joseph very heavily, and that just added to the whole dynamic that was going on. But when you read the story of Joseph, he seems like a young man who doesn't ever do anything wrong. Uh, there's some debate about whether or not he was wise in sharing his dreams with his family. And if he had his time again, maybe he wouldn't sit down and tell his brother's and his parents, that they were going to bow down to him. And, but whether or not he actually did anything wrong there is, is open for discussion. But he, he is a young man whose integrity is, seems beyond reproach. Uh, it doesn't seem to matter what circumstance Joseph is in, he seems to keep a right attitude. Uh, he does get down, there's no doubt about that, as you and I would, having been sold and then, and then betrayed again into prison. But it just seems like Joseph has the right attitude and the right spirit and God uses him in whatever environment that he finds himself in, whether it's Potiphar's house, whether it's the prison, whether it's Pharaoh's palace, whatever situation Joseph finds himself in, he just seems to say the right thing and do the right thing. Now, on one hand, that's a fantastic story. On the other hand, it makes me feel like I'm failing miserably. Because when you read about people like Joseph, you think, well, you know, who can be like him? You know, he's, you know, he just, did, did he ever do anything wrong? You know, you, you don't read about him ever getting in trouble. And yet his, his 11 brothers, well, maybe 10, Benjamin seems to have been pretty clean, but the other 10 seem to be taking turns at getting into trouble. But I don't want to look at Joseph so much this morning, but to look at another character that features perhaps more prominently in the story than we first realize, and that's Joseph's brother Judah. The Bible tells us that Judah was the fourth son of Jacob. Leah, the less favorite wife, in her efforts to attract the favor and appreciation of her husband, uh, a husband that she'd been given to deceitfully. Uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about how Leah must have felt in that relationship, of how knowing that she was not the one he wanted to marry, and yet her father had used her as a, a pawn, if you like, on a chessboard to manipulate a situation. 
and she found herself in a relationship where there wasn't a lot of love. And every time she fell pregnant and, and, and gave birth to a son, you read with the first three sons, I think, correct, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Reuben, Simeon and Levi possibly. Every time she had a son, she said, now will my husband love me. Now he'll look toward me. Now I will be appreciated and have favor in his sight. But it didn't seem to change. She's having kids. Rachel's not having kids. And yet Rachel's the one, if you'll allow me to exaggerate, Rachel's the one that gets the flowers. Rachel's the one who gets the birthday presents. You know, Rachel got something, you know, nice for her birthday. Leah got a washing machine. You know, the, the relationship was constantly like that. And finally, after these three sons, she gives birth to the fourth son and she calls his name Judah and she said, now will I praise the Lord. And we know that Judah means praise. And it would seem, and we may be reading a lot into it, but it seems that something changed in Leah's attitude. Instead of wanting to constantly seek the approval of her husband, she looks toward the Lord. And, and I could preach a whole message about Rachel and Leah this morning, but I don't want to. But, but Judah is the fourth son. Judah is the one whose name means praise. Judah is the one that the Bible says prophetically out of his lineage, out of that tribe would come the Messiah. He is the one that Revelation speaks about Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah. You read the end of Genesis, there is prophecy as Jacob is dying and prophesying over his sons. He talks about the scepter coming out of Judah. He's speaking about the Messiah that will come. When you look at the land that was apportioned to the 12 sons of Jacob, you'll see that Judah housed such significant places such as Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Cities that while in Judah's day may not have been significant, in our day looking back on the New Testament, Bethlehem and Jerusalem are right up there. Judah, when David's sons ascended to the throne after him, and I don't take too long on that, but there was division that came into the nation. And the Bible tells us that there was a split, a political split, and two tribes formed together to become the southern kingdom, and ten tribes stuck together to become the northern kingdom. And that northern kingdom became known as Israel which was Jacob's name that God changed. It wasn't, they didn't take on them the name of any one of the 10 tribes, but they took on them their father's name. But the southern kingdom, which was comprised of Judah and Benjamin, became known as Judah. Why did one kingdom take a man's name or one of the brother's names, the other kingdom take their father's name? I don't know, but there, there is significance in Judah's role all throughout history. And to the point that even the word Jew, the word Jew comes from Judah. The Hebrew word Yehudi, or of the tribe of Judah, is where we get, if you follow the language and the, the way that's the, developed from one language to another, and you can look that up yourself. But it's from his name that we even get the name Jew. They became known as Jews, which was associated with the name of Judah. And so this fourth son, who when you consider particularly in the age of the patriarchs, the firstborn was the most important. But somehow, in the way that God planned things, Judah became the one that often things happened through. When, when Joseph came and they took him and they threw him in a pit, their first response was, let's kill him. Now, they, Reuben, fortunately, is the oldest brother, managed to calm them down and say, no, no, you're not going to do that. 
But it was Judah who said, let's sell our brother. Judah, whose name means praise. Judah, through whom would come the Messiah, said, let's sell our own flesh and blood into slavery. Not much of a a credit to what his name would come to represent. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah, the guy that sold his younger brother into slavery. And then when you read on in the next chapter, in chapter 38, you'll find that Judah wasn't necessarily the most honorable character. He had a couple of sons. He had three sons, actually. The oldest son was so wicked that God just killed him. It doesn't tell us much, just that he was a bad guy. God killed him. That's all it says. The next son was supposed to raise up seed to the widow of the older son. He didn't do what he was supposed to do, so God killed him as well. This is Judah's family. These are his children. And then, we don't have Sunday school this morning, so I'm going to try to keep this PG. But then, Judah had a, an immoral relationship with the widow of one of his sons. And then tried to have her stoned to death for her immorality. And then she revealed, sorry, but you're in this with me. And from that immoral relation, you can read that in your own time, two twins are born. And from those two twins comes the lineage of Jesus Christ. And you look at all of this and you think, Lord, could you have chosen a worse lineage? You know, you're the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You're God manifest in the flesh. And when you look down your family tree, You know, some people seem to, you know, there's these websites you can go to Ancestry.org and it seems that people sometimes later in life like to find out where they came from. You know, a lot of people get a surprise. They find out that they were related to somebody in history that was famous for all the wrong things. Sometimes it's better off not knowing. But the Bible gives us the lineage of Jesus Christ. And it includes the son of Tamar, who had a bizarre immoral relationship with her father-in-law. It includes Rahab the harlot. It includes Bathsheba, who had an immoral relationship with King David. It includes Ruth, who was a Moabites, who was, according to the law of Moses, unclean. And yet God chose. It wasn't by accident. When When Galatians 4 and 4 says that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of woman made under the law. The Lord didn't just get up that day and say, okay, what family are we going to plant this child in? It was ordained from eternity past. When the scripture says that he was slain before the foundation of the world. And in Genesis 3.15, when he said to the woman, he said, your seed will bruise the serpent's head. He knew exactly who was going to be in his family tree. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to you or me. We would not pick those people. You know, people talk about coming from a good home and a good family and having impeccable, whatever it is, lineage. You know, but Jesus didn't have that. In fact, when, when you read the Gospels, and you need to read it carefully, when the Pharisees asked him who his father was, they weren't wanting to know what town he came from or what his last name was. They were questioning the legitimacy of his birth because everybody knew that Mary was pregnant before she and Joseph got married and when they said who's your father they weren't saying we'd like to meet your dad they were saying we don't even recognize you because you've come through what they considered 
they thought it was immoral. They didn't understand that God could cause virgins to have babies, and I guess that was understandable. They didn't get that. But, but the, whole, the whole thing is the, the, the pathway, the lineage, the plan, the purpose that Jesus had is the complete opposite of what you and I would have designed. If I said to you this morning, okay, there's another planet somewhere. No, we're not going Mormon, so relax. But there's another planet somewhere, and we want you to become their savior. We want you to become their king. Plan your approach. We'd start looking for palaces and armies and strategies and, and all these things. But no, no, Jesus did the opposite. He did the opposite. He, he came in relative obscurity. They asked, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They said, you know, who, who is Jesus? Who is... The, you know, Herod heard that a king was going to be born. Herod wasn't looking in a manger. He wasn't looking there. He was looking for in royal families and amongst the, the rich and the famous of his day. But I guess what I want to get to this morning, and I did say I wasn't going to be very long. Judah, there was not much that we read about Judah that would cause him to be the pick of the bunch. In fact, if I was reading Genesis... I would have thought it made more sense for the Messiah to come through Joseph's lineage. I mean, he was the example of the Messiah. Everything he did, he was a type of Christ. He was a godly man. He was a man who was upright and had integrity. But no, God chose the ordinary. And I guess the, the crux of what I'm trying to say this morning is God wants to be glorified through our infirmities. Every one of us is imperfect. Every one of us falls short of the mark. And there are some of you here and some of you young people, particularly I believe this morning, that's what I feel like the Lord's impressed upon me, that feel like you cannot be anything for God because of what you've done or who you are. And that makes sense, naturally. It does make sense. But God doesn't think the way that we think. God doesn't operate the way that we operate. God looks down and he says, out of your brokenness, I can be glorified. Out of your insignificance, I can be exalted. Out of all the reasons why you say it can't happen, I say it can. God wants to reveal himself to our infirmity. Am I saying that mistakes and, and, and doing things wrong is acceptable? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we, we throw righteousness out the door and we don't strive to please God. That's not what I'm saying. Because we need to, the Bible exhorts us, commands us, to live righteously. It says, be ye holy for I am holy. It tells me that without holiness we won't see the Lord. So those things matter. But it does not matter how much of an effort that you make. It does not matter how much you pray or how much you read the Word of God or how much you're using the gifts of the Spirit. You will never reach a point where you're a vessel suitable of yourself. If you want God to use you this morning, it must come through infirmity. It must come through weakness. It must come through that which is flawed and does not have perfection. All of those that presented themselves to Jesus as having perfection, he turned away. Everyone that came to him and the, the scribes and the Pharisees, rather than coming and saying, can you help us? They said, you are flawed. He turned them aside. But those that came to him acknowledging their weaknesses, acknowledging their 
iniquity, acknowledging their, their flaws and all of the things that were wrong with them, he touched them. He healed them. He restored them. He said, I want to use you. When you read about the who's who of the upper room, there weren't too many superstars in that room that day. There's a reason the Apostle Paul came later. He was probably, he wouldn't have fit in too much in that room. You see, he was, he was very highly educated and they were fishermen and tax collectors and publicans and, and these other things. That, that They were just ordinary men that Jesus called to off the street. But in that upper room, when they got into one place, in one accord, and they began to seek the face of God, it wasn't about who they were. It was about the promise of God. It wasn't about, well, we've got 120 of the best and brightest that Jerusalem has to offer. The complete opposite, really. It was out of their flaws and out of their weaknesses and out of their corruption that God said, I'm going to reveal myself. And they would come out of that upper room and people say, aren't these just Galileans? Aren't these just people like us? And yet we hear them speak in languages, the, the wonderful works of God. And from that upper room, it would explode throughout the land and out the known world to the point that they turned their world upside down. And not one of them was perfect. Not one of them had it all worked out. But they reached a point where they said, God, I'm willing to give my life with all of its flaws with all of its brokenness, with all of its emptiness, I will give it to you if you will use it for your glory. You see, there's something we see in Judah. And if you'll turn a couple of pages over, most of us are familiar with the story, but for the sake of some continuity, <coughs> when Joseph goes down to Egypt, he's sold into a particular household, a nobleman, we might say, a politician, a leader, a man named Potiphar. And Joseph, again, maintains that incredible integrity and character to the point that Potiphar puts him in charge of his whole house. Everything, he just takes care of his business, takes care of the household. Potiphar's wife, unfortunately, was a wicked woman and tried to get Joseph to be immoral with her, and he refused, and so she framed him in her anger. She framed him, and he was unfairly thrown into prison. And then in the prison, even in his despair, he began to demonstrate the same qualities. Got him appointed into some sort of a supervisory capacity in the prison. And then a couple of the, the Pharaoh's servants were thrown into prison for doing a bad job. The baker was thrown in and the butler was thrown in. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what they did wrong. I don't know if the baker burnt the croissants one morning or whatever it was he did. But they were thrown into prison and they both had a dream. Both men had a dream and they didn't know what the dream meant, but they knew that the dream had significance and they spoke to Joseph about it and Joseph said, well, God can tell you what the dreams mean and God used Joseph to interpret those dreams. And the, the thing is, here's the thing. Let, let me just digress for a moment. I didn't plan on saying this, but let me say this about people that tell you that they are prophets and people that, that, that want to give you a word from God. When, when men of God spoke in the, in the Word of God, it wasn't always wonderful. Sometimes it was. One message he said to the, the butler, he said, three days from now, Pharaoh's going to remember you and he's going to take you out of prison, put you back in your old job in the palace. The butler went, that's fantastic. He wasn't enjoying prison. But then the baker said, but what about my dream? 
And Joseph, no doubt, with a heavy heart, said, your dream represents three days as well. But he said, in three days' time, Pharaoh's going to hang you or cut your head off. I can't remember which it was. You see, anybody that always tells you good things and tells you they're a prophet, yeah, you need to watch that. That's free. That's not a part of my message this morning, but, but you need to be careful who you listen to. Amen. Bless the Lord. And so Joseph says to the butler, when you get back to the palace, remember me. Put in a good word for me. Maybe you can do something to get me out of this jail. The butler goes back to his work. The baker has his head taken off, and the butler forgets about Joseph. A little time goes by. Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has a dream, and in his dream he sees seven of the healthiest cows he's ever seen and seven of the scrawniest, meanest-looking cows he's ever seen. And the scrawny, sick cows eat the seven healthy cows, and they're still scrawny. He has a second part to his dream. He sees uh, uh, an ear of grain that is the the most rich and well-produced ear of grain he's ever seen, seven of those, and seven that are dried up and you wouldn't even bother picking to eat. And it's the same principle, but he doesn't know what the dream means, and he's, he's troubled. <clears throat> and his, his advisors and his musician, magicians, not musicians, his magicians can't tell him what the dreams mean. And the butler goes, the butler has one of those ding with a light bulb comes on moments. I remember, he said to Pharaoh, he said, this is my fault. I forgot, but there was a Hebrew in the prison with me. And I had a dream and he told me what it meant. And so they, they get Joseph out of the prison, clean him up, they give him a shower and a shave and a new suit and bring him in before Pharaoh. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams and tells him about how there's going to be seven years of plenty and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And he says, this is what you need to do. You need to store up during the years of plenty so that it'll get you through the years of famine. And Pharaoh appoints him to be the second in command of the whole nation and to oversee this project to preserve the nation of Egypt. That's long story short. You can read that in detail in your own time. But when you get to about chapter 42 of Genesis, the famine wasn't just affecting Egypt. It was affecting all of the known world. And Jacob's starting to run out of food, and they hear that there's corn in Egypt. He says to his sons, go down there, take some money, see if you can get us some food. But he says, Benjamin's going to stay with me, the youngest son. And I'm putting in this detail for a reason. He said, this, he's not going anywhere. Joseph, Jacob was incredibly protective of Benjamin because of what had happened to Joseph. So the oldest 10 sons go down. They meet their brother Joseph. They don't have a clue who he is. He looks Egyptian. He speaks Egyptian. He acts like an Egyptian. They're talking to each other. You ever been in a situation where somebody's talking a language they didn't think you could understand? Some of you that are bilingual have been in that situation where you hear people talking and they think that they're having a private conversation, but really they're not. So that happened so many times on the mission field with Sister Bullette. But that's stories for another time. But he is listening to these brothers talking to each other. And he challenges them. He's trying to find out where their spirit's at. And he said, you know, you're spies. You've come down to do, to do evil. And he said, no, no, we're just servants. We're all one man's sons. And we're, they begin to, to talk a little bit about their family, how they had a brother, but he's not with them anymore. And the youngest is at home. And, and Joseph, to test them, he says, to see if you're telling me the truth, go home and bring your younger brother back. That'll verify your story. And so they do that. They head home and they tell Jacob, he wants us to bring Benjamin. He wants us to bring Benjamin. 
And Jacob refuses. He said, there's no way. I've already lost one of my favored sons. I'm not losing the other one. And, uh, and so he said, the deal's off. And then finally, in chapter 43, and I'm jumping around. Please excuse me. I said I was going to be a bit disjointed. But it reaches to a point where the food's gone. They've got to do something. Famine's still happening. They've eaten all the food they bought. And so Judah speaks to his father. The first time it's Reuben that says to his dad, we need to take Benjamin. And his dad says, no way. But then Judah appeals to his father and says, if we don't bring him, we're not going to live. We're not going to be able to have any more food. And so finally, because he doesn't have a lot of other options, Jacob relents and allows them to take Benjamin, the youngest brother, down to see Joseph. And I'm trying to get this chronologically. When they get to Joseph, Joseph's quite moved to see his younger brother. But he sets up a trap again. He was really testing to see where, these, where his brothers were at. And he puts his cup, he has his servants put his personal cup into Benjamin's sack of grain. And then the, the soldiers pull them up and say, you've stolen something from the king. And they said, we would never do that. And if you look in chapter 43, let's go to 44, sorry. And he says, he commanded the steward of his house saying, verse 1, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put every man's money in his sack's mouth and put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest and his corn money. And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. So as they begin to make their way home, they're pulled up by the soldiers. They're pulled up and they said, somebody's stolen something from, from our master. And they say, why would we steal his silver or his gold? They said, you know, if you find it, you know, we'll be your prisoners. We'll be your servants or, or, or you can do what you want, basically. And so they opened every sack. And in verse 12, it says, And he searched and began at the eldest and left at the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then it says, Then they rent their clothes. And every man loaded up their ass, their donkeys, and went back to the city. And Joseph said, What is this that you have done? He said, You know, you've stolen from me. You've betrayed me again. And uh, he said, Now, he said, The one who, in whose hand the cup was found... He said, he's going to stay here and be my servant. And you can go back to your father. It was the final test. Because when you read what happened next in verse 18, it says, Then Judah came near unto him and said, O my Lord, let thy servant, I pray, speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not thine anger burn against thy servant, for thou art even as Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have ye a father or a brother? And we said unto my Lord, We have a father an old man and a child of his old age, a little one, and his brother is dead. And he alone is left of his mother, and his father loveth him. And thou saidest unto thy servants, Bring him down unto me, that I may set mine eyes upon him. And we said unto my Lord, and to their father, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said unto us, Except you bring your little brother down with you, you won't, I won't meet you again. It goes on, the story and, he, and uh, let me read it. Let me read it. In verse 24, it came to pass that we came up to thy servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go again and buy us a little food. And we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother be with us. Then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face except our youngest brother be with us. And thy servant, my father, said unto us, you know that my wife bare me two sons. 
And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I saw him not since. And if you take this also from me, and mischief befall him, you shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to thy servant, my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life, it shall come to pass when he seeth that the lad is not with us that he will die. And thy servants shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, If I bring him not again unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Now therefore I pray thee, this is what I want to get to, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. It may not seem significant, but when you take the whole story and look at it across, Judah sold Joseph. Judah said, let's sell our brother. The one that God said he was going to come through. He said, let's sell our brother. And we know he went on and demonstrated some questionable character, but somewhere along the way, Somewhere along the way, something's happened in Judah's heart. Because now, instead of wanting to sell his brother, he's willing to be the slave in his brother's place. He's willing to say, you know, the, the, the old Judah would have said, okay, keep Benjamin, I'm not going to prison. That's just how it's going to be too bad for dad. But something had happened to Judah along the way. Even though he was flawed, even though he had infirmities, God was doing a work in Judah's heart. And just like Judah, you see, Joseph, let's stand together. Sister Stanker, if I could have you on the piano, please. <coughs> Joseph may be the type of Christ. He may be the wonderful example of integrity and honesty and keeping the right attitude in all situations and not sinning against the Lord regardless of who was watching. And we can, we can learn so much from him. But we don't really identify with him. I don't. When I look at Joseph, I, I don't see. I see myself more in Judah. Here's a man that's flawed, a man that has brokenness, and yet for one reason or another, God's hand is upon this brother. Selected him out of 12 sons and said, through this man will come King David, Solomon. And eventually around about 2,000 years ago, with a star over the city of Bethlehem, over the tribe of the land that belonged to the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah was manifest in flesh. And I, I don't really know what God is doing this morning, but His glory, my infirmities, His glory, my weaknesses. If we're going to be what God wants us to be, it's not going to be by becoming Joseph. I wish it was. I wish we had a church full of Josephs. I wish I was Joseph. I'm not even Joseph's butler. But Judah, who originally was corrupt and flawed, God began to do a work in Now, I'm not saying Judah became valedictorian, honor roll, citizen of the year. But the point is that even in his infirmity, God tagged him and said, I'm coming through that lineage. Bless the Lord. And what I, as simple as this may be today, and I know it's maybe not a very well-structured message, but his glory, my infirmities. Now, when God wants to begin something 
in your life when He wants to draw you to a new level, to a greater anointing, to a better understanding. We would like to think that He just pours His blessings out. But more often than not, what He does is He holds up the mirror of His Word and allows you to see your shortcomings and allows you to see your infirmities and reminds you that where He's going to take you is not about you but it's about him.